0: Reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians 6 1 to 8. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not, be, why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for Robin and the word that you've given him this morning. I pray that you would anoint his words and, that, Lord, that you would... Touch our ears by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear the things that you want us to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I had never actually been inside a courtroom until I became a pastor. And then it wasn't unusual for me to be in court every month or so. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, Becoming a pastor didn't coincide with me embarking upon a life of crime. Uh, but it did mean that as a pastor of an inner city church, I, and, which was made up predominantly of poorer people, I was often in church or in prison. I was never in prison until I was a pastor, really. Until But then I was, that, that became a regular location for me as well. So I was in court or I was in prison, Supporting people from the congregation or from the neighborhood as they in various ways felt foul of the legal system. So my opinion of the legal system is shaped by my experience of walking alongside those people. And it's actually been reinforced by recent events in the US. So my experience of the legal system in Canada, and from what I understand, it's not that much different from the legal system in most other places in the world, my experience of the legal system is that despite the best intentions of many good people who serve in it, um, it is biased in favor of the educated, the wealthy, and the connected. And you only have to look at the recent events in the U.S. and the sentence that Paul Manafort got for stealing millions of dollars from the U.S. government. Four years, which was the same as a guy in New York got for stealing a hundred dollars worth of quarters from a laundromat. There are good lawyers and good judges in every society, but the system is invariably stacked against the poor and against the outsider. And Corinth was no different. Corinth was no different. In fact, it was probably worse. Judges were only chosen from the wealthy, and actually most legal disputes were were about money. Um, and members of the upper class received better treatment in the courts. That was actually written into the laws that people of the upper classes were um, had, had different penalties from people from lower classes. So actually the, the Manafort case wouldn't raise any eyebrows at all in Corinth. And not only that, the so-called social inferiors weren't even allowed to sue those higher higher than them in the class structure. So if you you were a a tenant renting from a wealthy landlord, he could do anything to you, and you had no legal uh, recourse because he was a higher class than you. Which makes me wonder, why in the world would the believers in Corinth be taking to each other to court. Most of them were not rich or educated or well-connected. We know that from what Paul says. So they would have been at a distinct disadvantage in the legal system. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's first look at how we got here. So last week we talked about sex and that discussion was started in uh, chapter 5 when Paul rebukes the Corinthians for allowing Someone who was living with, sleeping with his stepmother to continue to be part of the church. And towards the end of chapter 5, Paul clarifies that his, his instruction to avoid people like this only applies to believers, otherwise, as he says, he would, they, they'd have to leave the world. And he's not setting up standards for those outside the church, just those inside. So the, in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, What business is it of mine... To judge those outside the church Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside Expel the wicked from among you And since we're talking about judging What is this about about you guys Taking each other to court Paul does this all the time All the time He's talking about one thing He's talking about sexual immorality And something he says Triggers a thought about something else In his court cases And he goes off on a tangent that makes him That makes me like him more, because I do the same thing. you know I actually write out my di- my sermons as a discipline because otherwise they would take half as long again, and i wouldn 't say any more. <laughs> so you can be thankful, right Because <laughs> if you know me at all, this is something I struggle with, right? Um, I found a meme on the internet and I posted it on my Facebook page. it said. It's not that I mean to interrupt you. It's just that I randomly remember things and get really excited. (laughs) And a friend and former colleague wrote in the comments, I know, it's one of the things I love about you. (laughs) Paul regularly remembers things in the midst of dictating a letter because these letters were dictated. He didn't write them, he dictated them. So in the midst of dictating a letter, he, he, he remembers something and he interrupts himself. And so this morning's passage is one of those interruptions. So Paul's appalled that believers in Corinth are taking each other to court in order to settle disputes. And he makes his point by some very strong statements. Don't you know the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? This is what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If someone can lift 40 kilos, then clearly they can lift five kilos, right? And so Paul is saying the same thing here. If believers are going to judge the world, if we're going to judge angels, then what are the Corinthians doing going to law in front of unbelievers to solve their problems? Surely they can handle disputes in their own community, So Paul says, don't you know, as if it was common knowledge that believers would judge the world and angels. And that's actually quite possible. I mean, Daniel was a very popular book amongst first century Jews. Daniel 727 says, then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. And the theme comes up in intertestamental books as well. That's the books that were written in the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the new one. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus tells his disciples, "'Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel.'" And the theme comes up again in Revelation. The church in Thyatira is told, to those who are victorious and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. And then again, to church in Laodicea, to those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So this idea of God's people judging or ruling over the nations and actually hence the angels that were thought to actually have you know, have care of the nations. That's where the angels bit comes in. This idea that God's people would rule over the nations would have been actually a pretty common idea for Paul's listeners. Personally, I'm never very comfortable with language of power. Um, I've seen far too much abuse of power not to have my guard up when people start talking about ruling over the world. Um, but I can come to terms with what Paul's saying here. If I think of it in terms of humanity being returned to our original calling in Genesis, remember we were called to have dominion over the world, and that was not to rule the world for our own good, but to be God's stewards of the world to be um, his caretakers, if you like, to rule the world for his sake and for the world's sake, not for our own sake. But I still think we need to be very careful with language about ruling and judging and reigning. Because all those verses I quoted, they all see this as a future reality. It's something to look forward to. It's not something... For now, right now, like Jesus in his earthly ministry, we are here as servants, not as lords or judges. So Paul goes on, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Now, Jews were a minority community in the first century. And first century world, and like many minority communities today, uh, they actually preferred to settle matters internally rather than going to court. Even today, in Jewish communities, there's something called a bet din. It's a council of three observant Jewish men, one of whom needs to be well, you know, widely knowledgeable in Jewish law, and that can make decisions about internal issues in the Jewish community. And in many countries, including Canada and the U.S., these they operate like secular arbitration services. There's actually an arbitration service, a mediation service in the ground floor of our building, where we live here in Antalya. So they work to um, settle disputes outside of the court, inside the community. They keep it in the family, as it were. So the Christians in Corinth were an even smaller minority than the Jews and would have been at an even greater disadvantage in the courts. So Paul is recommending that they follow the established patterns of Jewish communities and deal with their disputes internally rather than going to the secular courts. Jesus says the same kind of thing in Matthew eighteen fifteen: If your brother or sister sins... Paul is simply reiterating what Jesus has taught. And in fact, you could look at chapter 5 as a practical application of what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. This is what it looks like. This is what they should have done. Instead, it seems as though this man's living arrangements had been dragged through the civil courts, the Christians already had enough problems with people saying all kinds of terrible things about them. They didn't, give, they didn't have the need to give any more ammunition to their neighbors who wanted to see them discredited. Then Paul goes on to, talk, to use another of Jesus' teaching, turning the other cheek. In verse 7 of chapter 6, he says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? This week in my regular reading, I was in Luke 6, where it says, If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is a radical thought. Sometimes we get so used to Jesus' radical sayings that we don't realize how radical they are. This is a radical thought that there might actually be something more important than winning. There might actually be something more important than winning. In Paul's case, talking to the Corinthians, what's more important is actually the reputation of the community. And through that, the reputation of the gospel. Again, 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 if you look at Paul's recommendations, to how believers should live, whether it's in Corinth or or Philippi or Ephesus or wherever, his underlying concern is, what is the reputation of the gospel going to be? How does this affect people hearing the gospel? Does it put the gospel in a bad light? I don't think Paul's suggesting that our, our first response to every conflict in the church should be, just let it go. But it does need to be one of the options we consider when we feel offended or when we see something that we think needs to be corrected. There's a question I ask myself in these situations. Is this the hill I want to die on? You know, that's a, a military exp- expression. you know, We have to take the decision if the position you're holding is important enough to justify losing everything else to hold it. Or if it's wiser to let it go, so you can win a more important battle somewhere else. Often, to use another military expression, discretion is a better part of valor. It's better to let it go than confront it. But sometimes, sometimes it is necessary to actually go and try and resolve a conflict. And Paul says that should happen within the community, not in secular courts. Now, I may be wrong, but I don't believe there's a- anything in this community at the moment that might end up in court. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I don't know of anything. But we wouldn't be a human community if there didn't arise conflicts from time to time. As I said in the um, in the blurb for this, as soon as you have a community of any size, two. A family, a couple, there's going to be conflict. It's part of human nature. They can be small. Most conflicts do start off small. But if left to, to fester, they grow. But they don't have to grow. There's wisdom in Scripture to deal with conflicts. So, how do we do that? I want to spend the rest of this message being very practical. And drawing from the same source as I believe Paul was drawing from jesus 's teaching in Matthew eighteen, how do we go about resolving conflicts in the church? I want to give four practical guidelines for conflict resolution okay it's always my responsibility if you 're in a conflict of any sort it's always my it 's always your responsibility it's always my responsibility. Deal with it personally if possible. Don't accuse, and if necessary, bring in a mediator. So first of all, it's always my responsibility to try and resolve the issue. Matthew 18.13 says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. So in answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes. You are your brother's keeper. Um, And as I said last week, if you see me, or actually any of I'll speak for the rest of the pastoral staff as well, uh, of any of us doing something that um, you believe is contrary to the way of Jesus, you actually have a responsibility to come to us and point it out. We'll talk about the details about how to do that in a minute. Now, Depending upon your personality and your experience, some of you may lean more naturally towards the um, point out their fault end of the scale. While others of us lean more naturally towards the end of the the just let it go end of the scale, right? And those of us who lean towards the pointed out end of the scale, that would be me. Um, we need to check our hearts to see if we really love the person or if we just want to be right. I have a good friend um, that uh, we, were, we argue all the time. It's part of our relationship. Last time we, we saw each other, we were up to two o'clock in the morning arguing about something, and our wives were on the other side of the room going, just remember your friends, okay? Um, so at one point, this friend of mine, Pats, you know, he, just, he just stopped the conversation by going, you know, Robin, you're right. You're righter than right you're the rightest person I know. (laughs) So we need to be sure that we don't just want to be right, okay? But those of us who lean more towards the just let it go end of the scale also need to check our hearts. Do we really love this person? Or do we love having a peaceful life more? You know, are we willing to be uncomfortable if it means that our brother and sister will be able to walk with Jesus better? I said, it's always my responsibility to deal with issues. That's because Matthew 5.23 says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So Matthew 18 is about my brother or sister sinning, either against me or more generally. Matthew 5 is about me sinning against my brother and sister and them having something against me. Either way, it's always my responsibility to deal with it. If my brother and sister sins against me or if I sin against, sin against them, it's always my responsibility to deal with it. In the Matthew 18 context, it's quite possible that my brother or sister doesn't actually know. <laughs> They're completely unaware of how his, his or her actions or words are affecting me perhaps a wider community. Matthew 5 context, whether I've done something to justify it or not, my brother or sister has an issue with me. Either way, it's my responsibility to deal with it. There's no wiggle room here. There's no room for, well, I'm waiting for him to come to apologize to me for what he's done. Nope. It's always my responsibility to initiate the process. Jesus goes on to say, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And the important part in there is just between the two of you. Okay? Just between the two of you. Don't talk about it with a bunch of other people. You might want to discuss it with someone close to you that you trust to keep it confidential, just to figure out if this is, is actually something that needs to be addressed. I often talk stuff like this over with Marilyn. Again, again, I'll write an email to someone. I won't actually write send it. I'll just write an email to someone that helps to, you know, defuse the situation. And then I, Marilyn has looks, look at it and Marilyn goes, "Nah, you don't need to send this." Uh, <laughs> um, you know, should I just let it go? But that's as far as it should go in terms of you know before you actually start the process of talking to somebody. Don't get multiple opinions on this, okay? <laughs> Somebody in your life you trust who sees the world differently from you. And remember, this only concern only counts if the person sins against you or you see them doing something questionable. If you know that somebody has something against something against you, right, then you don't have the option of just letting it go. If you know they have something against you, you don't have that option. That ball is in their court. It's still your responsibility to deal with it. So it's always my responsibility, deal with it personally, and then the hardest part is don't accuse. It's hard because you want to identify the behavior that's concerning you, so you have to talk about it, but as soon as you start talking about it, there's a danger that the person concerned will perceive it as an accusation or an attack and put their defenses up. Now, you can't control the other person's responses. But there are a couple of ways to improve your chances of being heard. The first thing is to make observations, not accusations. Okay? So you tell people what you're seeing. I noticed you doing this. You said or you wrote this. You seem to be sad or angry or withdrawn or whatever. It's important that you frame your observations as your impressions, say you seem angry, not you are angry, because you seem angry as you're reporting what you see, your impression you are angry, you're making a judgment about someone else's internal state, and you you know maybe they just always talk like that right so so you observations about what's concerning you. And after you've identified the cause for your concern, use something called an I statement. That, you know, expresses the impact this this has on you. So I'm concerned. I'm worried. I'm hurt. I'm saddened. Jesus says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. And often it turns out that there's been a misunderstanding, miscommunication, and the issue finishes there. However, when someone brings something like this to me, um, and yes, people have confronted me about things in my life and my behavior, I'm not perfect. Um, Marilyn does it on a regular basis. Um, Very gently, but (laughs) when someone brings something like this to me, I try and assume that there must be at least some truth in what's being said to me, and I try and hear that truth. I confess that isn't always my first response. I wish I could say it was. But my first response, at least inside my head, my first response is often to defend myself. I have to consciously take control of that impulse and listen to what's being said to me. And there are all kinds of reasons why we can discount... You know, confrontations from people. Um, they're younger than me or they're older than me, right? They have all kinds of problems in their own lives. Well, who doesn't, right? They have no right. Well, actually, Jesus says we not only have the right, we have the responsibility to confront one another. See, it's relatively easy to hear a rebuke from someone you respect. Humility is being willing to hear a rebuke from someone you don't respect. And why we don't respect people made in the image of God is a whole other topic, and we're not going to go there. So if you're the confronter, use observations and I statements. If you're the one being confronted, pray for humility to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. Jesus goes on to say, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And once again, you have to make that that judgment. Is this important enough to bring other people in, or should I just let it go? Should I, as Paul says, just accept being wronged? So if you decide it's important enough to continue the process, then bring in someone to mediate. That person should be someone who's respected by both parties, who's committed to being impartial, whose job is primarily to get the two parties to talk to each other, not to talk to them. Proverbs 18.17 says that the first person to speak always seems right until the other person puts forward their case. The mediator's job is to help the two parties hear each other's positions, not to make a ruling on it. That's a difficult job. Um, I'm not very, well, I've done that in the past. Marilyn's much better at that than I am. So, In conflict within the church, it's always my responsibility to address the issue. There's no room to wait for the other person to make the first move. It's always my responsibility. Deal with it in person. Don't go, you know, spreading this around and talking to other people about it and getting there. Just for prayer, that's that's the worst Christian thing to do, isn't it, right? We have this issue with someone and we share it with everybody except the person we have an issue with so they can pray about it. Now, all these people know this issue, right? No, deal with it yourself in person. Don't accuse. That's the hardest part. Use observations to say, this is what I see and use I statements, this is how it affects me. And if you're the one being confronted, listen for the truth that's been spoken to you. If necessary, bring in a mediator. Now, there is no guarantee. There is no guarantee that these principles will actually result in people being reconciled. Or that someone walking out of the way of Jesus, like the guy in... Chapter 5 of Corinthians, someone walking out of the way of Jesus will see their error and correct their behavior. There's no guarantee. But they sure increase the probability of a positive outcome. And that's what we want, right? There's one more sentence of Jesus' directions in Matthew 18. I haven't dealt with it. He says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church... Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That applies to the public church discipline of someone who is continuing in sin after they've been spoken to. And that topic deserves an entire sermon to itself. So I'm not going to go there this morning. Actually, my prayer is that if we apply the principles I've talked about this morning... We would never have to publicly discipline anybody in the church if we if we if we take these principles and take them to heart. And when there's conflict, when there's disagreement, when there's um, when when we when we when we're concerned about someone who is appears to be walking in a way that isn't glorifying to God, or if we've done something and. People are offended by us. If we take these principles and apply them, my prayer is that that would deal with it and we would never have to go that last step that Jesus lays out. Lord, may it be so. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we are are but flesh, and you know that. And Lord, as we live together, walk together, seek to follow you together, there are conflicts, there are misunderstandings. And yes, Lord, we sin, and our brothers and sisters have a responsibility to point that out to us. Lord, help us to both learn how to do that graciously and lovingly and well and to receive confrontation well. Because our hearts, Lord, are to walk with you. Our hearts, Lord, are to show the glory of your character into the world. So, Lord, help us to walk in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.